0: For for the day, through the destruction of our enemies, we earn salvation. Navigators and welcome to episode 27 of the Grim Up podcast. This is James
1: and this is Mike.
0: If you're coming to us for the first time we're a podcast devoted to role-playing in the 41st millennium using the game systems created by FFG. Each uh, each episode we talk about a different game system and tonight's game system will be Rogue Trader. So just before we get into it I'll quickly explain that uh, we're actually recording this episode ahead of time. By the time you hear this this episode will mark our one year anniversary. So I just want to basically thank everybody who's Listen to the show over the last year and has joined us and become a fan of the show. We appreciate you, know, you being a part of it, and obviously Mike, I appreciate that you your efforts as well. I'm amazed we managed to get through a year without killing each other. Yeah, uh, you know, this is something that uh, a lot of people told us that we should sort of do other things first. They said, oh, "I'll start a blog first, or do something easier than a podcast." But we just said, no, nope, we're just going to do it," and uh, you know, we've enjoyed enormous support from from the player base and from FFG, and you know, it's a great milestone to reach. It's, a year old, you know, so I think the next milestone we'll shoot for is uh, episode 40k, you know, some of those lines when we get there. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, but uh, uh, also we're actually, as a metaphor, we're recording a bit out of order because uh, at the time this episode will be due to air, I'll actually be in China. Uh, So we decided to record this episode early. So Mm -hmm. we will break slightly from our regular uh, format because we're not really going to be able to do news or a community section properly when we are recording ahead of time. So uh, that being said, we'll still do the rest of the show as normal So as I mentioned before, it is a Rogue Trader episode Uh, We're going to talk about um, all things Navigators So we'll start off with an overview of the warp navigation systems Uh, Then we'll talk about uh, Navigators uh, for uh, the actual career itself Uh, We'll do a review of Stars of Iniquity And we're also going to tackle another uh, viewer request or listener requested topic Which is how to create memorable adversaries for your game and for your group Yes. Uh, And then we'll do a regular contact section and close out tonight's show. So, Mike, shall we just jump straight into our game discussion? Yeah. Knowledge is how Hide it well. So, as I just mentioned, for today's topic, we're going to be talking about warp navigation. Uh, You know, the idea behind it, the system behind it. It's one of those things that's changed substantially during the development of Rogue Trader, because you had one system, as presented in the Core Rulebook, which I think... From my mind, and for, I think for a lot of players that I've spoken to, his mind was a little bit lacking.
1: It's very simplistic.
0: Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But I suppose the main problem with will cover to this is really that you get very samey results. You know, yeah. It's just you just it's samey over and over again. Yeah. Uh, whereas the system was later revised in the book Navis Primer. Yeah. Which we've uh, previously chatted about as well. Uh, so we'll cover up both systems and talk about the you know, sort of pros and cons of each. But let's just talk about. What is warp travel in the 40k universe and why is it so important? Mike, you want to start off with this one?
1: Okay. Um, simple fact is that 40k occasionally uses real physics. And the most common piece of real physics that they use is that a ship can't travel faster than the speed of light.
0: Yeah, this is relativity.
1: Relativity. So, simply to travel from one edge of the solar system to the middle of the solar system takes about a week. Mm. To travel between planets, between stars... Like, from Earth to Proxima Centauri, you know, you're talking about years, generations even.
2: Yeah.
1: And simple fact is, without warp travel, humanity wouldn't have expanded very far at all. In fact, they probably wouldn't have expanded much further than a couple of planets, a couple of stars. That's it. Nothing else. So, they have navigators who enable them to actually hop into the warp travel vast distances and take advantage of the fact that time doesn't travel the same way in the warp as it does in the real world.
0: And distances aren't the same either.
1: And distances aren't the same either, exactly. So, you know, an hour in the warp could be a week in reality or the other way around, and a couple of kilometers in the warp could be light years.
0: That's it. I mean, the whole thing is that a ship that enters the warp still traverses a distance. It still has to actually fly through the warp in order to get from where it is in yeah, you know, the material realm from there to where it wants to be, basically. Yeah, uh, and of course the warp itself is heavy, is very dangerous to a ship because it, the warp is the realm of chaos, not not just of the chaos gods, but just of pure you know form chaos, basically. So warp storms, you know, things that will. Uh, very quickly destroy a ship trying to travel through the warp, or destroy the mind of anyone trying to fly
1: it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, demons would just possess the whole crew. Things could go horribly, horribly wrong. That's why they have fields to protect the ship. Yep. And you have a navigator who's the only person who can actually look into the warp, although they don't actually look into the warp, sort of get an idealised representation of the warp, and navigate the ship through the storms, past the demons... To where, to where it, it needs to be. To where that's
0: right. Lit. Yeah. And of course, the limitation of warp navigation yeah. is the astronomicon. So the astronomicon being the the device built on Terra functioning through the Golden Throne, which is effectively a, a beacon to all navigators I can use yeah, as a yeah, reference point.
1: Yeah, it's a fixed point. You know where um, the astronomicon is. Yes. Therefore, you know where you are. Therefore, you know where your destination is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing about kind navigating. Of. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing about navigating space is that not only have you got to sort of factor in the vagaries of the warp, which are extreme, space is constantly in motion. Yes. You know, every single thing. I mean, I know we always look at the 40k universe as a, a single fixed map, you know, which is basically the uh, you know, the Milky Way as such. The Milky Way itself still rotates within its own position around the galactic central point, etc. So, yeah. You know, with all these things, planets, suns, everything are constantly in motion. It's an immense thing to work out how to actually come out where you want to be.
1: Exactly, especially since you've got to remember that the geography of the warp isn't like the geography of the real world. You're not just laying one map over the top and saying, well, here's here and it correlates directly. It may not. You know, Travelling five kilometres north may travel you hundreds of light years west and then travelling one kilometre west could travel could move you north or could move you any direction
0: that's it. And don't, forget up, don't forget up and down there's no up and
1: down <laughs> there what is that? no Z axis why,
0: why is it that role playing games or anything really that maps of space are always in two dimensions you know when presumably space well, is actually three dimensional because
1: books are two dimensional it's very <laughs> difficult to get a three dimensional picture of space in a book
0: that's true I suppose you could draw a cube and fill the cube with everything but
1: uh... eh, still not very good okay
0: we're getting too complicated here. All right. So, uh, as you mentioned, the, the navigator is the person who is able to guide the ship through the warp. Now, yeah. it, it, I guess it depends. In some stories I've read, the navigator is physically at the helm of the ship, yeah. actually controlling it. In other cases, they are feeding information to a an hel- appropriate helmsman.
1: Well, the, the one thing that's clear in all of them is that they have something called an oculus which is where they dwell which is where they're able to view into the warp
0: yeah they can, they can literally and open the warp to the oculus without exposing the rest of the crew to it
1: exactly and some for any ship that has a navigator in an oculus there's a direct input into the warp engines now how that works is never really explained because obviously you can't explain something that's So Unexplainable, yes. So maybe they tell the crew how to pilot the ship. Maybe they pilot it themselves. Yeah, I mean,
0: certainly in the system of Road Trader, especially with uh, the introduction of Navis Primer, there are references to roles that are required to be made by the helmsman at the time as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I, I think that it's fair to say that they probably tell the helmsman how to move.
0: Yep.
1: So the helmsman's flying completely blind, even more so than normal, and just relying completely on what the navigator tells them.
0: Yeah, I mean... Generally, a ship will have more than one navigator for a oh, variety yeah. of reasons. One, I guess, fatigue if they're doing a long long journey. Yeah. Secondly is if the navigator dies, you know, you don't want to be without a navigator if you can avoid it, so you'll have backups. Yeah.
1: Navigators, genetically unstable generally, so you've got mutation and death as well and insanity, so yeah. you've I mean, got you'll have a backup.
0: Luckily, you'll have a navigator primaris or whatever it might be in order to sort of run the whole thing, but it will be not be uncommon for a group of navigators to reside on a ship. Yeah, yeah. All right. So that's what warp travel actually is. Let's talk about how warp travel is done. So we'll start off first off with the the Rogue Trader core book system, yep. and this was our, our first view of warp navigation in, in this setting, basically. So uh, it's done in a number of steps. All right. So the first step is determining the duration of passage. So the GM will decide this is how long I think that this travel should take. Yeah. Now, this is entirely up to GM Fiat. This is just a, It's decided by the GM. There is a, a, a chart on page 184 of the main book which goes through some sample journeys. Uh, I mean, we sort of... When we did our own game, being the Unbound, we sort of come up with our own concepts because at the start of that, we actually started the game there set on Terra before the group left for the expanse I'm going to be exploring in that game. And we basically said, okay, it's four years between terror and yeah. you know, this final, we, we wanted to sort of create the enormity of even with the warp you know you can't just necessarily enter the warp and go all the way to your destination either you have to yeah. sort of go along several known routes well, and pop out along well, the way it.
1: you always stop on jumps because a ship doesn't carry that much food Yes. carries six months, a year maybe, worth of food and rations. for all the And sure, in the warp, you can travel vast distances in a full six months of warp travel. Yes. But the longer the distance you're travelling, the more chance there is of being
0: off. Yeah, way, way late or whatever it might be. Well,
1: it's more the simple fact that the further you're travelling, the more chance there is that you just don't turn up where you want to be. That's it. So you do short jumps, make sure you get to where you're going, then you do the next short jump, and you just go from... Point to point, and that's how pirates work. They wait at those established stopover points and they ambush anything that comes out of the warp.
0: Yeah,
1: exactly how they work.
0: And the other thing is, the warp itself is subject to change too, so you might drop out in order to get updated navigational charts. You wouldn't go a long distance.
1: And generally speaking, most navigators travel along established warp routes. I mean, road traders obviously don't always, but for standard travel within the Imperium, you go from established warp routes. So you may have to go out of your way to get to a final destination just because that's the path you have to take.
0: Yeah, and if you're, if, if you're a road trader in general, it's advantageous to stop along the way because you might be able to do additional business oh, yeah. along the way. You know, you know you're going from point A to point C via point B. If point C buys something that point B needs, you have the opportunity to buy something that point B produces you've got the opportunity to make some extra Extra phones on the side yeah. yeah.
1: and Mm -hmm. also you've got to remember there's crew morale as well no crew is going to want to be in the warp for six months at a time
0: that's it I I mean this is the thing is that okay well actually I'll I'll come back to this top point I want to talk about this when we get to talking about the Navis Prime system but we'll keep going on with the main book system now Uh, so once you've got the duration um, then what happens is that the uh, the Navigator has to come up with what their estimation of the duration is and this is done through a secret warp navigation plus zero test by the GM against the navigator's warp navigation and they will then say to the navigator you believe it'll be blah you know and and there's no sort of fixed sort of position as to where you know how far out you might say it is based upon degrees success or failure i I suppose you could use the the chart that actually determines how far you you arrive out as such but you know generally speaking the GM once again controls the data that goes to the player
1: yeah, I'd say probably a, a month by degree of, degree of failure. Well,
0: depending upon how long the journey's going to be. I mean, if it's only going to be a few days, you know, you probably vary it by the same type of thing, you know, yeah. by days or months or whatever, if it's a month-long journey. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the next thing that the astropath needs to do, the navigator needs to do, is locate the astronomicon and use yep. that for reference. So that's done by a plus 10 awareness test by the, by the player, and each degree of success or failure on that test will add either plus ten for successes or minus ten for failures to all subsequent navigation warp tests made for this journey. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you get you get one chance I suppose if you're not happy with what you what you and you won't push for time, you could stop and redo it potentially. But the main issue is if you get three degrees or more of failure, the character simply cannot locate the astronomicon. It's yeah. just it's just not within their sight. Now they can still attempt warp travel under those circumstances, but it's at a minus sixty or warp navigation test because you're basically flying blind.
1: Yeah, you don't know where you where your starting point is, which makes it very difficult to calculate where your end point
0: That's is. That's it, yeah. And I suppose this could also be used if, for whatever reason, the characters decide to take their ship beyond the halo stars.
1: Yeah. So the halo
0: stars are the region of space that are at the very limit of the astronomicon's light. So if you travel beyond that, you're sort of, you know, you're off the edge of the map. You're sailing uncharted waters, and, you know, you've got no reference to come back as such. I and mean, that's the funny thing, is you could use Astronomicon to go beyond the halo stars, but then you can't use it to get back again. So, yeah. Uh, and, and once again, if you couldn't see it, you could use this minus 60 on what navigation tests derived from this same rule, which would suck.
1: Yes, unless you've got a very, very good navigator. That's it. Because if you make that jump and you fail and you end up, you don't know where, then you don't even have any idea where your starting point is. Yeah. You can't even calculate a uh, guess. You yeah. can just get more and more lost until everyone starts to death. Fun, fun.
0: All right. Uh, next up is Chiding the course, uh, which is basically just a once again a secret on the gems part uh, plus ten navigation warp. Uh, now it was previously perception. If you read the main book, it says perception, but it was fixed in the errata to be uh, navigation warp. Yeah. And this, the result of this test, will have an effect later on. All right. So now we've got uh, steering the vessel. And this is basically how the navigator guides the vessel through whatever it is the warp may throw at it. Well,
1: the warp so, moves with currents and things. It's it's like a sea. That's it. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, okay, so first off, it's a, a navigation warp test with successes or failures adjusting the total time it takes to reach the destination. Yeah. Uh, now, we've all heard stories in 40K of ships somehow arriving at a destination before they even left their origin point. As such are the... The powers of the warp. That's not represented in the the system here, except that if you have a potentially fast ship using the shipbuilding rules, it can take a number of days off the journey, which could take it into negative terms as such. You know, which yeah. is why you've, why the condition has a very secret auto to us, to sort of you know prevent things happening when ships break the laws of time as such. Yeah, probably not really the scope of an old game. I wouldn't think. Not, though. not
1: really. I think it's all the thing that you use for GMFA if you want to move the time period that you're working in. Just to throw it in.
0: That's it. Um, Alright, so if they fail that test and the failure includes a nine on the roll, then the ship is regarded as being off course. Now, what off course means is up to the GM. It's not defined. It has a few examples of what they may mean, but generally speaking, the the, the risks to the ship because of being off course are up to the GM to decide from yeah. that. Uh, and then you also roll for um, uh Warp encounters every five days in the warp. All right, and you get a plus 20 on this chart if the earlier role that the GM made, which was the plus 10 warp navigation role during charting the course, was successful. And basically what you want here is high rolls. So 75 or above, no drummers whatsoever. Anything less than 75 and you've got, you know, you, something. You you encounter something in the warp. So I guess this for me is where this system falls down a bit. Because there's only the chart isn't very big. Yeah, it's only like a half dozen things, and uh, there. Okay, I, I found this when I was running one of the groups during the Unbound. Where okay, I had a I had a session planned out. I knew they were going to go. They'd already told me they were going to go to this particular world. So I planned out this particular world, what they're going to do, and then they did their navigation test to get there. And they rolled poorly, and I rolled up shadows in the warp, where you know they think they've come across the the shape of another ship adrift in the warp. And so straight away the group's like, you know, we want to focus on that. We want to, how can we salvage this ship from the warp? What do we have to do? Completely forgot about where they were going. You know, it was now all about, okay, we've just seen something in the warp. Let's deal with this. And of course, it's not even really clear in the books how you would salvage another ship in the warp.
1: If it was as that easy to salvage another ship in the warp, people would actually do it. Yeah. More likely, you're, 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 your players will go, oh, that's what we want to focus on. And you go... Okay, as soon as the crew find out about that, about you wanting to get involved with a cursed ship lost at sea, essentially, yeah, they're not going to... They're going to mutiny. That's it. <laughs> they're yeah. going to go absolutely nuts when you stop your ship in the warp, just sitting there, yeah. and try and do things. So, that's
0: it, yeah. So I, I, I talked them out of it. They went on and kept playing the game, and then in a later game session, rolling again, oh, shadows in the warp, you know? It must be the same one. This must be... You know, a sign we'd have to deal with this now, you know, because once again, it's a relatively limited limited chart. But I mean, you know, I, I suppose it, solved, it served the purpose it was required to. But unfortunately, it got to the point with running Rogue Trader for me where I was just hand-waving warp travel. Because going through and rolling up one of a few strange events was really just window dressing. It, it wasn't adding to the game, unfortunately. Yeah yeah so which I, 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 which is a shame
1: because then it makes the navigators feel a little bit more useless that's because right their main focus of what they do in the game is just sort of pushed aside that's it
0: now here's also the benefits of the bane hole because if you've got a Bane hole you can roll twice on this chart and take the take the result that you want yeah.
1: and there's there's other modifications you can get as well there's certain engines that reduce travel time there I think there's a different type of Geller field the uh, r19 or b90 or something like that that means that you're rolling every three days instead of every five there's all sorts of things you can get which modify these rolls yeah um but we're just going off of the base the basis
0: and that's it yeah all right i want you there you then move on to leaving the warp which is a uh, minus 20 navigation warp test so once again as this is a navigation warp test you will get whatever benefits you receive for it from your location of the astronauticon check as well and uh if you fail that test, then you don't exit the warp where you originally planned to. Maybe you're further in the system, maybe you're further out, maybe you're not where you meant to be.
1: Maybe you're in the middle of an asteroid field. Yeah,
0: once again, it's GM, GM failure. The yeah. GM decides what they want to do with that. It, it depends
1: know. how badly the players fail as to how badly you should make it for them. But exiting the warp in the wrong place can have disastrous results.
0: Yeah. So, for my mind, looking at the system in the core book, this is really just a... How to, how to do this without a lot of volume to it as such it's just yeah. here's a, here's it's, a a quick and, it's
1: a quick and dirty
0: that's system that's it you make up the unusual results when you get an unusual result otherwise it works normally and I said it really led to a case of me hand waving a lot which for a lot of navigators led to the problem I found which we'll talk about during the navigator uh, section of tonight's show which is that they go okay well I'm not really needed for much warp stuff I will focus on pe- um, combat warp navigation powers you know like yeah yeah <laughs>
1: Red, yeah, scourging yep. and all that sort of
0: That's stuff. That's it, yeah. Okay. So let's let's move on to the other option. The other option is the way that the system is presented in Navis Primer, which, for my mind, is a lot more robust and would be my preference for any sort of game. So if you have a game where a player decides you're going to play the Navigator, then I would strongly recommend that you get your hands on Navis Primer. Yeah. And run the system from that book. If you, if you Absolutely.
1: Don't... I think it comes down to that if you've got to navigate a player and you want to, probably for your travelling there, if you've got a whole set of sessions mapped out for this adventure, Chronicle, whatever you're playing, run this system for, for travelling to your major system, doing all your stuff. If you have to do incidental warp travel that's on the fly, probably use the main book one. But maybe think about some other events that can happen. Yeah, well,
0: I think that this system doesn't just add more depth to the system. It brings more of the the 40K theme into the system as oh, well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, and we'll go through why. So, once again, it's a step-based system, but it's got a few changes to the steps. So the first step is called divine the Auguries. Uh, and this has a number of parts to it. First off, um, it's a Sinuscience test to basically align the ship's auguries, prepare for warp translation, basically. Yeah. And uh, here you get bonuses based upon the availability of charts, you know, the quality of the charts, whether or not the character themselves were involved in actually creating the charts, because one of the sort of concepts that's discussed a few times in the books is that each navigator perceives the warp differently. Yeah. But they've got their own way of looking at the warp. You know, it's not, it's not fixed.
1: But they can't... Even the navigators with their enhanced abilities can't actually look into the warp as it is because they'll just go completely gibbering insane and get blasted to nothingness.
0: Yeah. But so, they have, have a way of their mind dealing with the, the sort of... the shapes and currents of the warp as yeah. such and presenting it in the way that they perceive. Uh, which, of course, makes it hard to do maps from navigators because, you know, say your navigator perceives the warp as... A melodious tune if they're, on, if they're on course it follows a melody but when they stray from the course they hit a bum note you know how do they translate that onto paper for another navigator to follow as such you know so certainly being the progenitor of your own maps is a big advantage to you oh, yeah. for the purposes of actually dividing the auguries
1: definitely uh,
0: now the results of the this test are going to basically cover a few things they're going to cover off uh, the stability of the warp travel um, they're going to cover off the clarity of the astronomical to the navigator and they're going to cover off the the final uh, duration basically. All, all rolled into this one roll through a number of charts which gives you a, a much broader idea about what the warp travel is going to be like from the onset basically. Uh, now there is also a rule that says when you roll a nine during this test uh, on either dice that means that the character has determined that there is a a risk of warp storm around the ship as well around the entry point for example and that, that then requires that Well, it's heavily suggested that the captain and the crew then undergo a right of appeasement in order to assure, ensure that the machine spirit of the ship is, is properly prepared, prepared for what's to come.
1: Yeah and whatever that is will depend on the navigator. I mean it could be something as horrible as putting a single crewman naked in an airlock and jetsing them into space or it could just be a really big feast. Yeah. I mean, it will completely depend on the navigator and the way and tone of the ship and how you're running the game.
0: Exactly. Whether it's a predominantly you know, mechanicus versus a ecclesiarchal ship, exactly, you know, it would have yeah. very different rites of appeasement. Yeah. All right. So that's divine the auguries The next step is the actual translation. All right. And this is where you really start to see the theme of warp travel in 40k get bought in because you've got. Um, you've got a ward versus ill tidings so you know various superstitious rituals in order to ensure that the uh, uh the, the, the 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 translation goes well that the ship and its components are undamaged you then have omens you know this concept that the crew themselves may become jostled by the whole warp travel experience and so you do a, mora- a morale test and if it fails then it the captain's either got to roll command or the Missionary's got to roll uh, Charm in order to calm the crew to the sort of, you know, the strangers of the warp entry. Uh, and then you've also got the risk of warp travel hallucinations. Every player character rolls a willpower test or they may start experiencing unusual things. So, I mean, Mike, tell me about... Uh, you ran a game a while ago where uh, we had to travel on a uh, an abattoir ship, basically. Yeah. And warp travel there was quite odd. So just give us an idea about how you handled the... The verbose description of warp travel this isn't a system. this was just all the way it was described. Yeah, I
1: mean the way I did it was look at the ship. It was an abattoir ship, so it was you know it was pretty stinky and it was full of panicked animals waiting to get cut into pieces um which is quite horrifying to start with, and then you start adding in the warp effect of that because I mean the warp is just a realm of pure emotion, so what the people are feeling resonates into the warp, so I had it that you know walls looked like they were stretching and bleeding and there were groans and, and all sorts of sounds of the metal twisting and moving and all that sort of stuff and you just have to sort of go well, what's the spirit of the ship like? You probably would have rolled it up you have an idea of what the ship's like, you have an idea of what the crew are like and you just sort of verbalise it and describe it you just have to sort of go well, what's going to put the players on edge because warp travel's never nice it's never pleasant
0: yeah I mean, I, I, in the way I've described it in games, I've always tried to describe the translation to and from the warp as the, the, the weirdest time. Yeah, You know, like, oh, like, definitely. Like, yeah, it, it's, it's like, you know, the, they always say the da- most dangerous point for an aircraft is when it's taking off on landing and such. Yeah. And it's the same here for me, basically, is once you're in the warp, the weirdness of it becomes not so much background noise, but you just get on with getting on. But it's those weird changes between, you know, the material and the warp and vice versa that really sets the crew and the people on board the ship on edge.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Your your translation between the warp and the real space is your moment to show off your inner Clive Barker. Yes. (laughs) So go nuts. (laughs) It's only for a couple of minutes. It's going to freak everyone out, and then then everything's either normal or it's just as bad for the rest of the trip, in which case they know they've got problems.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's especially good if... uh, using a system where the navigator first estimates the length of journey. And then for whatever reason, it's longer than that, because that means that, you know, the moment, they, the moment the navigator says to the captain, we'll be out in a week and 10 days have passed. The captain's sort of going, well, you know, I told the crew a bit about a week. Everyone's a bit upset now. How much longer is it going to be? You can't tell me. Oh crap. You know, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, all right, so, so that, that, that's your translation site. Once you're in the warp, once again, that's going to actually locate the Astronomicon. And this system, it's it's by and large done by a plus-20 silicium test. That's assuming that the Astronomicon is there, ready to be read, everything is happy. Uh, it could go down as far as minus 20 if something is actively shrouding the navigator from the Astronomicon or, you know, further if it's just completely out of sight.
2: Yeah. All
0: right, so then you've got uh, steering the vessel. So this is where your Navigation Warp tests come in, basically. Uh, Now, once again, every five days, just like with the first system, you will then look at the uh, Warp Travel encounters. And these can generate different types of encounters. Now, you've got uh, physical encounters. So, to bring in the Warp, that presents a, a physical risk to the ship. Or psychic encounters. So, demons whispering at the edge of the Navigator's consciousness, trying to tempt them towards you know, loosen the ship into the warp, basically. Um, they can they can cover incursions, all these sorts of things that you, you know, the reason you've got to get a field is that all these things can go wrong. Uh, and the difference here in this chart is you're trying to roll low. So the lowest result is uneventful as such. But the good thing here is that once you've got a result, once you've got something happening, the navigator then has the opportunity to avoid it. So it's detected with a somescience test, a, a way around it is worked out with a navigation warp test, and then whoever is helming the ship has to make a pilot spacecraft test in order to avoid whatever it is the navigator has detected. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's not just bad luck on the chart. It's, you know, the risk and then the follow-up actions that determine whether or not the risk reaches fruition or not.
1: Okay, so, and it's important to point out that because this chart works in the opposite direction of the chart from the core book, there are actually some modifications you can get for your ships, which say add plus twenty because it has a negative effect on warp travel. Which obviously you're going to have to adjust the other way.
0: Yeah, or alternatively, you can treat it as a plus twenty on one of the rolls to avoid it. Yeah. By like potentially the sighting test, to detect detected or the navigation test to go around it, for example. Exactly. But yes. once again, a, a warp span hole allows you to re-roll and pick the the one you want, basically. Yeah. So convenience there. Uh, all right, and then, once again, you're got to leave the warp. So it's still a minus 20 warp, uh, navigation warp test. The results of this will then be partly off course, a long way off course. You know, it does come to an extent down to a bit of GM fair. still about what being off course means, but it's broken down into more categories now about how far you're actually off course and yeah. what that risk means. And
1: if you want, if you don't want them to be in the completely wrong system. What you can say off course means is that more times traveled in the real world than expected. Yeah. So you know they've lo- they've only traveled for a month, but an extra d10 months have passed in the real world over what should have passed. Yeah. and you can do that as well. So you know if you don't want to derail your adventure too much, but you want to put in a, a time factor of oh no, our head starts suddenly being cut in half because of we're off course. You can do that as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I've certainly seen that in most cases, 40k ships arrive, no matter how bad they roll, they arrive at the edge of a system. Yeah. yeah you know, beyond the Oort cloud, uh, because it's implied that uh, it's very dangerous for a ship to translate into or out of the warp very close to a planetary body.
1: Well,. Yeah, because you've got satellites, you've got asteroids, you've got comets, all sorts of things. If you translate inside one of those things or with one of those things in the same physical space that you're occupying, you're going to get obliterated straight away. Yeah. So
0: you just got to read the shira um Chronicles where there's an example there about a mad um, captain translating his ship while still in orbit of a planet and the, the very negative effects it has on the ship and to an extent the planet as well so yeah you know, it, it's why ships fly to the, to the outer the of the system before they actually do translate and then once again come back in that way and I sort of felt that even if you roll badly it's just going to push you further out you know I, I figure the ships have enough systems in the warp drive to prevent them from translating in such a way that could cause a,
1: a major damage
0: yeah or warp rift to open in the system as well so yeah, yeah. Uh, and, so, then, yeah,
1: okay. it, it, and of course if you have them translate further out you're just going to take extra time travelling with sub you know, sub warp drives, drives yeah. into, into the system
0: that's it uh, and then finally you've got omens again so once again that the the whole translation is likewise quite unpleasant and once again that you know, there's ill tidings to be controlled there's the crew to be maintained there's
1: yeah. I mean, that was rights one, to be done that was one of the things I did in that particular scene was describe all the stuff that the crew and the crew's families in this particular case, because it was a big ship, did before they translated between the warp, you know, preparing the doors with omens and wreaths and, you know, huddling up in corners and and protecting themselves with signs and prayers and all that sort of stuff, because the crew are not going to like warp travel.
0: Yeah. I mean, don't look at warp travel in 40K as being like getting on a plane and flying somewhere today. No. It's more like getting on a boat and travelling somewhere in the 1600s. You know, is that that you are likely going to be gone for a long time? There's there's no guarantee that you would ever return, and or that your family would ever know what happened to you because the ship may be lost at sea. You know, it's a, it's a heavily superstitious lot. Yeah.
1: You know, right. that, that generations could pass before you ever get back to them.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's the warp travel is so far beyond the ken of the average person in the forty universe that it's become a form of magic to them almost. You know, if you look at it that yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and certainly, yeah, that, that, that superstition and all that sort of thing is all, all built into it. Uh, now, the last thing that's covered in the Navis Primer book is options for a ship to ply the warp without a navigator. Yeah. Um, which.
1: It is ahead. covered in the core book as well, yep. um, but only for very short jumps because that's all you can really do. You, you make. Massive guesses about where you are and where you want to be, and you sort of fly in that general direction.
0: Yeah, what it basically means is that a ship with a with, if navigator is killed; that they're not completely screwed. Yeah, like they 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 do have a chance of getting somewhere. It's a, it's a very it's a large risk you're taking. Yeah, you know, it's not something you would do by a choice. Yeah, but you know, the options are there for warp navigation without a navigator, and it's pretty much warp guessing. Pretty much, you'll point it in the rough direction you want to go, and just cross our fingers and. And you hope. Know, and hope, exactly right. Uh, so, I mean, I think that the Navis Prime System is definitely the way to go for, for good, descriptive, warp travel with lots of options, different styles, the physical, the, the psychic, and the incursion-style events, the ability to actually control your destiny to avoid those things, so know what you're going to face, and then getting around it as such.
1: Yeah, and I'd say, actually, even if you don't have a player playing the Navigator use the Navis Primer one if you can, yep. but all you have to do is you can make all the rolls before you even run the game, and that way you can just do it as a descriptive narrative event of what's going on yeah, or you without can, even, having yeah, to roll charts.
0: Even just way. hand wave the rolls and say they're going to make it. But don't just say, I-, I would hate to play 40k and say, okay, you guys jump on a ship and fly through the warp to location B. Okay, now we're playing there. You know, Warp travel should never just be an internal thing that you just you know describe in one sentence and move on. It should be something that is descriptive and, and evocative and it's, in many it's, a ways, ma- it's, it's a major event. Yeah, and, and, and it's, a op, it's a fantastic opportunity for horror. Oh, definitely. Because that, that's the nature of the warp, is that it's just... It is twisted and it's evil and it's not pleasant to be involved in in any way, shape or form. That's right. All right, so we've covered off navigation. Let's jump into our navigator topic. All applicants report to the Administratum for career assignment. So here we go with our career discussion. And as I mentioned before, this will be the navigator. So let's start off with what the role of navigator is in the crew i mean we've already covered it with the navigation section it allows the ship to make its way through the warp uh but i think it's i guess it's important to define what the navigator is as a person because it's not just another member of the crew Yeah. because every ship has to have a navigator so these navigators come from family lines basically you know they are an um an engineered uh well they were engineered during the dark age of technology you know even before the time of the Emperor and the... Yeah, the... Um, Great the Great Crusade. The Great Crusade.
1: Yeah, long before
0: that. That's it, yeah. They they were one of the first sort of technologies developed to help mankind traverse the warp and, and explore beyond its own solar system within reasonable periods of time.
1: Yeah. They were probably a result of... The very first attempt was a warp drive. Then the very second thing was a Geller field. And then a navigator to actually make it so that those things were worthwhile using.
0: That's it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this, the way this has been developed is you've now got these navigator houses, and you'd almost think of them like noble houses in a hive city as such, you know, they have their own, sig- their own sigils, their own support staff, their own way of doing things, you know, there are several houses that are particularly named in the rogue trader setting in, in the book, but there's probably dozens if not hundreds of different navigator houses throughout I, the 40k setting.
1: It's important to remember though that they are a little bit more than a noble house mm. because navigator houses navigators are essentially the lifeblood of the imperium. Without navigators there is no warp travel, there is no imperium. Therefore they get certain protections and privileges against the law and everything else so they, they, and they certainly exploit that. Yeah. yeah. I, I
0: mean this is the point is that they are mutants. Yeah. they they, they are they are you know uncontrolled, you know, mutant-changing uh, mutant, you know, mutant changing individuals as such who uh, would normally be subject to the sanction of the Imperium by way of the Inquisition, but because they are regarded as a quote-unquote controlled mutation, you know, in that they mutate within certain
1: parameters, parameters
0: you know, yep. similar to what an ogryn is in some respects, yep. they are tolerated.
1: And it's also well, the fact that they hold such vast amounts of power. As yeah,
0: well. yeah, the fact that you know, we, if we didn't tolerate them, we could no longer travel, yeah, you know, <laughs> the warp, basically with any with any reliability as such. So they do enjoy a very privileged position. That being said, some you know some are created more equal than others. You've got, for example, magisterial houses, which are like the noble lines among navigator houses. Yep. In stark juxtaposition to the shrouded houses, which are you know, or renegade houses, which are you know, if anything almost criminal uh, houses as such within the Imperium. Yeah,
1: they've fallen so low. But even though they've fallen low, they're still a lot higher than your average Imperial citizen. No navigator house is going to be living in hovels, you know, digging ditches with their hands. Yeah. Even the poorest navigator is still going to live in opulent luxury compared to the average citizen. Just
0: maybe avoiding some of the scrutiny of the imp- of the Imperium from time to oh, time. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think it's very important the relationship between these navigator houses... And the road trader crews. Yeah. Because I I guess there's this expectation that, um, I mean, the way we did it in our games was basically that navigators were pretty much assigned to the ship, you know, or maybe to the road trader line as such, but that they were expected, you know, that that road trader was expected to always take a navigator from this household onto his ship.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's described in, I think, the uh, Harlock trilogy about the Nostromo, Family line, which is essentially the Navigator line, which worked almost exclusively with the Harlocks. Because if you're a big enough Rogue Trader family line, you're going to have your own navigators who do all your stuff. Because that way, your secrets aren't getting out. They're getting all the maps and things that they so desperately want. You know, they're getting all the money, and it's a win-win situation for everyone involved. But um, for smaller families, they have to deal with Navigator groups, which may have agents working with other hostile groups
0: yeah i, I guess it comes down to there with the we described for example maps and charts is that most navigator houses would prefer to share the data because it may, leads to safer walk travel because there's more information to go around but then again those that work for road traders may be inclined to hold on to data because they may have come across a, a hidden case that they want to return to without necessarily giving its location away to others as well, so they might hold that data to themselves. It's, yeah, definitely. It depends upon the navigator and who they're working for and what they're doing.
2: Yep.
0: All right, so when it comes to building a navigator, uh, let's start off with talking about characteristics. So I think that willpower and perception are probably your main two. Definitely. You know, perception is going to affect things like your syniscience, your awareness, you know, the, the basic spotting things in the warp, whereas willpower is going to affect some of your navigator powers, you know, anything to do with fear or or corruption, that sort of stuff, which you will probably be subject to from peering into the warp. I think these are two probably key abilities for navigators. Yeah.
1: Plus intelligence, because navigate warp is based off of intelligence.
0: That's right. Yeah, so, and they are probably one of the more intellectual career types. You know. Yeah. I guess the only other one would be toughness. Yes. Uh, two reasons. One is that a lot of navigator powers cause fatigue. Yep. And fatigue is is governed by toughness. Secondly, because When a navigator is subject to mutation, they make a plus 10 toughness test to avoid actually picking up an extra mutation. So if your toughness is quite low, you're going to turn into one freaky looking navigator within a few navigator powers time. Yeah. Whereas if you've got a decent toughness, you will remain relatively normal looking, which will probably make your life in the Imperium a lot easier. Because Mm -hmm. although they are a tolerated mutant, the average person in the street might not quite know about how tolerated they are.
1: Yeah, exactly. And... Also, toughness does fit from a fluff point of view because they have to stay awake for long periods of time, usually, while they're navigating through the warp. Yep. Um, so, yeah, you don't want falling asleep on the job.
0: Why don't you quickly tell the story you told before about um, the old sort of fluff about how navigator houses oh. pick their new... Their, their, the
1: their new, new the new leader of all navigators? On, yes. Yes. Navigators have a palace on tower, And this is old fluff, and, I mean, it is obviously old fluff from reading it. Yeah. Um, but essentially, navigators originally, when... when the head navigator dies all the leaders of the houses start getting bigger and stronger and more aggressive and they get the urge to start fighting in duels against each other and then they, they beat each other up and, and kill each other off until there's only two left and they have a big fight on terror and whoever wins becomes the new head navigator and at that point that navigator house and all scions of that navigator house who are carrying out become slightly stronger and voila and of course it, it's good to remember as well that also this is a period of terrible hardship for the rest of the Imperium because while this is going on all your leaders of the Navigator houses are beating the crap out of each other and all other Navigators have problems accessing the Astronomicon and the Warp because of whatever genetic effect there is. I mean it's very crazy, crazy fluff but it, it's interesting and yeah. yeah
0: things. Really, have- I always think Navigators in this system I mentioned it before always remind me of the navigator guilds in Frank Herbert's Dune. Oh, yeah. You definitely. know, they mutate into giant slug-like creatures after a period of time. Yes. <laughs> but it's uh, not quite what happens in 40K, but, yeah, the, the concept is similar. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's talk about navigator skills now. So, definitely navigation warp. <laughs> probably your, your main skill, argue, arguably speaking. Uh,
1: yeah, probably tied with sinusions. That's it, yeah, that's
0: yeah, it. Yeah. And, and even awareness, because you know, if, if you're using the system from... The main book. There are some awareness tests there to spot yeah. the Astronomicon in the first place.
1: Yeah, and if you can't find the astronomical, everything else it doesn't matter how good you are with minus 60s applied, you're not going to be any good at anything. That's it. Potentially navigation stellar as
0: well. I mean, yeah, it's not really what their shtick is, but they can probably, if they're so interested in charts and you know plying the, the fields of space, that you know navigation stellar could fit in there as well. Um, okay, there's lots of. We found a lot of skills that have brackets in it. You know? So we said, okay, like, uh, scholastic law astromancy, for example. Yeah. Uh, Trade astrographer, if you want to be the sort of person who makes your own chart. Because of how you Which is
1: this. definitely a good idea. And
0: that's it. Forbidden law, the warp. Then um, you've got things like both common and scholastic law, Navus Nobelite, You know, know about the, you know, the navigator the sort of... Navigators, life. the histories of navigators, yeah, what um, families are. Forbidden law navigators, secret tongue navigators... Yeah. Uh, and then finally, maybe even just pilot spacecraft so that they can actually guide the helm of the ship when they need to in the warp or otherwise.
1: Worst case scenario, yeah.
0: That's it. So definitely, there's a lot of skills that have brackets after it, you know, a lot of qualified skills as such.
1: I also noticed uh, looking through their advances and what they get access to, they get quite a lot of access to... Um command-based skills as well, yeah. air of authority, into the jaws of hell, all that sort it's of stuff. It's funny, because
0: with the general weirdness navigators, I probably wouldn't be putting a high fellowship on them if I was I wouldn't
1: one. really think of that either, but it is an option there, so they can be, you know, commanders of men, though probably the men will be very scared of them. <laughs>
0: That's it, yeah. I mean, I guess it comes back down to that whole sort of noble line as such, and uh, the ability, that, that, that sort of rulership ability, I guess, maybe. yeah. yeah. All right, so looking at talents. I mean, navigator powers is probably the main talent you want because that will allow you to add and increase your navigator powers, obviously.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, but also meditation could be quite handy for navigators. Yeah, get rid of some
1: of that fatigue.
0: Um, warp sense and improve warp sense. Definitely. Uh, Dark soul and armor of content. Now, these are both good for reducing your corruption.
1: Reducing your corruption and resisting your, your mutation. Your mutation that's checks, it, yeah. yeah,
0: which you, you don't want to become too mutated. Or I assume you don't want to become too mutated. Yeah. Uh, if you did have decent fellowship then maybe peers like peers like nobility or navy or maybe even mutants if you're a shrouded or renegade house for example
2: yeah
0: uh, then finally fearless I mean they're going to see so much weird stuff in the warp that talents like Jaden and fearless I think will really fit the style of the character not necessarily to be min maxi but just to be yeah. fitting with what the character is going to be like uh yeah, I do not really think they are a big talent one. I thought they are more sort of skill-based.
1: Yeah, I'd say they're more skill-based. The major talents you're going to be aiming for are going to be your navigator abilities and pumping those intelligence, perception, willpower, toughness up as much as you can as quickly as possible. That's it. Uh,
0: okay, so let's talk about uh, alternate career ranks. So you've got, from Into the Storm, you've got the Navis Scion, which is... I guess the more social navigator, if you do want to go that path of yeah, the command, etc.
1: The face of the navigators. Navigators themselves, they're, they're trading houses. Yeah. And they have to make deals, and they have to earn money. And the Navision is the least mutated navigator at the time, who they decide to put into that sort of position.
0: That's it. Uh, available at rank 1 as well. So yeah, a good option if you want to go one. that sort of social navigator. Uh, house Operative from hostile Acquisitions. Yep. So a house operative could be an operative for the road trader line, but it could also be an operative for the, the navigator the, line.
1: Yeah, the navigator house itself. You
0: know, yeah. so someone is in there where they may have some suspicion that the road trader or someone working for him is not working in the interests of the navigator house, so they send a navigator in who is particularly skilled at rooting out, you know, any sort of untoward behaviour by the, the road trader captain or his or his crew. Yep. Uh, Valid rank four. Uh, and then finally, the Eleutrium Devotee from Navis Primer, available rank 1. So, this is a particular sect of navigators who are concerned about astropaths or psychics in general. Believe that psychics represent a very real danger to the Imperium, not just because of the regular fear about psychics, but because they have seen the power of the warp and they realize just how dangerous a psychic is with the ability to basically become a, a conduit for the warp into into the material world as such. So, yeah. uh, as a player character choice, interesting, but you could certainly kind of blows with any astropaths in your group if you have them. Yeah. Uh, but the options are anyway if you want to play a sort of a yeah, a, it, a cult based.
1: It's also um, a good point to remember that navigators are absolutely terrified and paranoid of someone developing a technology or a nav or an psychic power
0: which renders them
1: useless yes, because they are mutants they are mutants and as soon as they are no longer needed they will be exterminated yeah absolutely yeah,
0: so it's like the oil companies flying electric car aren't they there yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely yes <laughs> uh okay so let's just talk about um how you might play a navigator i guess one thing you want to sort of work out early in the game is is your character's first loyalty to the navigator house or to the captain and crew. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I had this all the time when I used to work, uh, well, I'm still working in capacity in the security industry, where I used to have security guards working for me who would, you know, they would work for a business that wasn't me. You know, I sent them to work every single day at a particular site for a particular business. They'd be there five days a week. That They knew all the people there. They had an email there. As far as they were concerned, they worked for that business. Not for me. I was just the person paying them. You know? And so when it came down to whether they erred in favor of the business they worked at or the business they worked for, it would usually be the guys they worked with. And, and in many cases, it actually really ended up costing them that position or their job or whatever it might be uh, because they were focused on the wrong group at the time. And I guess uh, as a navigator, you've got to remember that you are not just a member of the crew but a representative of the house. Yeah. And that you may choose to play that up to an extent like you know always remind the, the road train about how you're not here at his pleasure you're here at the pleasure of the household that you represent as such
1: oh absolutely yeah and it, i mean it's definitely covered in the fluff as well in that regard because navigators get you know next to the captain the most opulent quarters with the largest suites and everything they could possibly want because if the navigator doesn't want to do his job you're stuck wherever you are. Yeah. You know, only an insane captain would do an unnavigated warp jump while a navigator's on board just <laughs> because the navigator doesn't want to do his job and you want to spite him. I mean, <laughs> That's
0: it. I, mean, I remember what the, when we did the very first session of the Unbound, it was like a trial session and that was the one set on Terra and one of the NPCs we had played there was a, a very key member of the Navis Nobleite assessing the crews for which one should go to the expanse, and, I, and the, this is actually our friend Lynette. She was playing that character at that game, and she wasn't really familiar with 40K at that point in time. And so, I sort of said to her, like, you know, you need to re- like, when you're playing this character, play it as a sort of a, a, a grandiose noble who realizes that no matter how good anybody else at this, you know, this meeting claims to be, anything they can do, you can learn to do. What you can do, none of them can ever do. You know that, that you, are, you that you are literally a beautiful, unique snowflake. You know that that that, that you're so special, and, and they should treat you with the respect that that comes with you. Know? So the moment someone just dis- you know, dismisses you as just another navigator, then you can write them off <laughs> because they have they they failed to, uh, to understand your true value.
2: Yeah,
0: And she did it fantastically as well. So, <laughs> but it was uh, a, a key thing I wanted to get across. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about when it comes to playing navigators is picking navigator powers. Uh, now, I will say that stacking the deck from Into the Storm is... Broken? R- ...is ridiculously good. Yes. Yeah, uh, it will turn the table in any spaceship encounter you have with your ship yeah, to a huge degree. So I would ex- I'd tell GMs to exercise...
1: Restraint in letting yeah, that power yeah, be just chosen? Yeah, just,
0: just, just caution about it, you know. Yeah. But it comes down to the fact that, once again, we did Unbound. We had a couple of people who played Astropaths that were... They put, went park with another telepathy path. Whereas others were like all, you know, Force Staff and Warp Lightning, and they wanted to be combat astropath- combat psychers basically, despite the fact they were effectively a communications methodology. Yeah. Likewise, you know, should you be looking at taking warp navigation powers which make you a much better navigator, or a versatile combatant? You know, we, we spoke before with the guys from FFG, and uh, I don't remember who it was now, one of the guys they were saying about how their friend who player's navigator was you know given to constantly using the unlimited eye on every single opponent opponent you know as, as, it was their main weapon as such you know it's not really the way that they should be thinking because character navigator I think like like psychos should be respecting of the warp because they know exactly how powerful it is yeah um, but just to give some thought to when, you, when you're buying powers about whether you want to play the hardcore navigator and it, oh, I guess it may come down to what system your GM chooses to use yeah but uh, yeah keep that in mind I guess Anything else you want to say about Navigators? Uh,
1: Not really. I think that pretty much covers everything.
0: All right, well, let's uh, jump into our review. My Lord, the information you requested is now available for your review. Okay, so for our review today, we're going to take a bit of a step away from the Navigator theme. I suppose to an extent there is some, I guess, astronomical connection here as such, but uh, we're going to talk about Stars of Iniquity. Yes. And uh, Okay, so I'll start. I'll I'll get it out there in in the open. When I first picked up this book, I had one big problem with it, which I still do today. Yep. And that is it took so long to come out in the development cycle of Road Trader.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, uh, this is a, without going too much into the detail, this, this is a fantastic book for anybody running a Road Trader campaign, probably anyone running any 40k campaign. Yeah, definitely. Uh, if you pick this book up, you will never be without an idea for a Road Trader game. You know, like, you know, friends sit up and say, let's play Road Trader tonight, and you've got nothing planned. This book does it all for you, basically. Yes. Um, yeah, we'll go through it step by step, but, I mean, just quickly, we ran the Unbound for three years, which was our, our big freeform campaign, and I think this came up probably about three months from the end. Yes. And I can tell you, if I'd had the materials in this book available when we first started, it would have been quite a different sort of, I guess, campaign, and we would oh. have used definitely the material in here.
1: Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if, I really quite like what's in this book. I think it's a great book. But as you said, um, it would have been nice to have had this out earlier. Yeah, that's
0: it. But I mean, that's... You said it before in our pre-show. I mean, that's something... It's, it's always the case of role-playing books, isn't it?
1: Yeah, there's always something that comes along and you go, oh, wow, I wish I'd had this earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you can't really... can't really avoid that. Um, in some ways, I mean, this has star system creation stuff, which is similar to what you see in the, the um, GM, GM screen. screen. Yeah, yeah. But on a much... Improved scale.
0: That's it. All right. So let's, let's go through it a bit by bit. So uh, after the introduction, chapter one is world generation. Yes. And, and this is probably one of those bits that uh, we tried to come up with methods for in our own game. So we use at first what was in you mentioned before the GM's kit. yep uh, Which gave you a pretty sort of basic description of what was in the what was in the uh, in this in the area. The world generation here is so much more in depth. Oh, um, definitely. I mean, I, I, firstly, I think it's great, but Mike, I mean, you 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 come from a science background with your own education, so I, I'm sure that you get annoyed whenever role playing games get chemistry wrong because that's your yeah. science But I'm sure there's probably you know, astrophysicists or astronomers or probably even regular physicists out there geologists, that, yeah, who read this section and go, "What were they thinking?" You know. But yeah. I mean, yeah. for for the layperson, like you know, like myself, I, I look at it and go, "Wow, this you know, at the moment." If I was playing a game when the GM started describing things like the you know the um. The green zone, you know, the outer reaches of the sun's influence, as such, I'd start thinking they've done a bit of, you know, looking up the basics of astronomy on Wikipedia for for yeah. one thing, anyway. Yeah, uh, so you so you generate literally every everything about a system from the system star to all the various objects throughout the the system itself. Um, yeah. You know, the different types of stars have different influences on the, I guess, the density and the uh, of objects in the various zones. You know, the, the Livability uh, of objects in the various zones, even things like generating stuff like mineral content. Uh, I mean, just to use the example once again of our own live-action game, uh, at first we used to use the uh, material presented in the Game Master's Guide to sort of generate systems, and then uh, some fans had created sort of like an online tool which created a much more developed, in-depth one. You could actually generate things like binary systems and... It, it, you know, you ended up with dozens and dozens of objects in each individual thing because you had, like our own solar system, you know, worlds with multiple moons. You know, each moon had its own. You know, so if, you, if you've got a, a gas giant, it could still have a moon which is habitable potentially or at least has an atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, and all those things were worked out in this program. And I, I guess that for my own part, uh, what I struggled when I ran the games with that was that because there was so much stuff there and we really wanted each game of the Unbound to be about a particular... About, you know, this is your voyage to this particular region. We'd sort of put one item of interest, storyline-wise, in each sector. You know, so although we had all these various objects, they sort of became a bit of fluff, I, I guess. And, you know, I, I'd say to people, okay, there's an asteroid field, and straight away, you know, can player play start going, like, oh, is there minerals there? Can we mine it for minerals? And I'm thinking, like, oh, get, get part of the asteroid field and get to the planet where the Xenos are, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, at least this... Uh, this world generation will give you lots of options in that sector. You know, literally you can generate so much material that you could be doing multiple games going through just a single sector, going from world to world, checking out the moons, checking, you know, Absolutely. looking at unusual astronomical sort of readings, which could be derelict ships or, yeah.
1: or, or anything like that. And that's part of why I think this book is quite good for even dark heresy or, or any of the others Yeah, is you can take that and you can create a system. You can have, and Inquisitor and his retinue turn up, or sorry, Inquisitor and his warband turn up. Yes. And to try and work out what's going on in the world, what's going on in the system as a whole, he has to look at everything. Yeah. Um, maybe it's the system which is only open every so often because of warp storms, whatever. You can use this book to figure something out. You can have a basic idea which you're going to put in place, but there's so much more than just one world in a system, and this lets you build everything else.
0: Yeah. I mean, and even just the, once you get down to the world level, the planet creation system gives you so much stuff as well. I mean, all things like the environmental hazards, even down to the actual species on the planet, rather than just saying, you know, may contain groks or some other predetermined 40K species, it actually has some general ideas about creating apex predators, you know, yeah. terror beasts, you know, all sorts, all sorts of things that, you know, a regular you know, populated or at least a, 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 a life saying world would probably have. Yeah. uh yeah you know, then even getting down then into um, uh, the sort of civilizations you might have there as well you know because certainly if you've got developed civilizations you'll have probably people there probably technology stuff that's going to interest the the group in some way shape or form yes so I mean this part you know as soon as I got this book I read through that and went this is great already I'm sold on this book but you know it actually it continues from there okay so the next part uh, chapter two is planet side adventures and i guess you were saying this before mike this is sort of like the old dungeons and dragons dmg isn't it really yeah. it's just it's it's all these sort of great feeder items that you can use to build your own adventures on a planet whether it's uh, you know a treasure generator for example where you can literally roll on charts and say okay it's a you know okay it's a power sword but it's a xenos power sword and it's got this particular quirk about it as such you know and generate the actual treasures that the the PCs are always looking out for looking you know for, yes. ArcheoTech um, yeah. Yeah, all sorts of things like that and uh, yeah I almost start expecting to see adversaries with you know treasure type E or something like that after them as well but uh, no it, it, it is reminiscent of some of the old D&D second stuff but in a good way you know, giving you those sorts of um, those sorts of options you know it also goes through things like uh, the sort of I guess a whole series of different plot hooks that you might use on a planet everything from derelict ships to uh, you know, seismic events, all sorts of things that you could build into very compelling, uh, I guess, events around in your own campaign, would you yeah. agree?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. And especially, I mean, it covers a lot of the different types of terrain you'll meet and what's obviously different about them, what different features you're going to find in a desert to a jungle, how, how to make that seem like a real jungle rather than just... ...a carbon copy of the Amazon or the Conga...
2: um,
1: ...and make it actually feel alien... ...and make it feel like it could potentially be a threat... ...because one of the things about Rogue Trader... ...is you're going to these unknown, uncharted worlds... ...and it's not always the aliens that get them... ...sometimes it could be something a lot less... ...extravagant that kills kills the party off sort of thing... ...and that happens, I mean, it's unfortunate... ...so it, it should help remind players... That they have to be careful that, you know, no matter how good their plasma guns are, if they fall down pre- crevices which they can't see under the moss and the ground, it doesn't it, it matter. It could be just as
0: much trouble, that's it. Exactly, yeah. yes. I mean, I quite like the fact that this chapter started off with just some ideas about what the motives might be for a profit-focused individual going to this particular planet. You know, yeah, exactly, what, what, is, yes. what does this planet offer that you know, any other planet doesn't offer as such?
1: Yeah, That's another good thing as well, the fact that it shows you that you could turn up on a world which seems barren and doesn't have lots of mineral resources, but you might be able to find something to make a profit off of and ways to look for that. And that's good for players as well, because it can help players start to think more like a rogue trader. How do I turn this empty nothingness into some sort of money?
0: Yeah, exactly. All right, and I guess this also this chapter finishes off with just... A few pieces of gear, so I guess some items that are key to exploration yeah. for for for, uh, for explorers. I yeah, think. So no, like one, that...
1: one of my favourite things in this in this chapter, yeah. the, the items, yeah. is the extendable ten foot pole.
0: <laughs> it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a classic role playing trope as such, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I quite liked also the uh, the exploration uh, mechadendrite for for uh, tech priests as well, which you know,
1: so. I have to say seems like an it should have been turned up earlier considering they are explorators yeah that's it for your mechanicus they probably should have had their explorator mechadendrite a bit earlier than this yeah,
0: that's it Although but it,
1: better late than ever
0: and once again you know, like most mechadendrites it has a way to be used as a weapon as well yes well, yeah, potentially with things like the toxic quality if it's set up that way So, well
1: that's it any <laughs> piece of equipment can be used as a weapon they're generally big and heavy
0: yeah well it's 40k isn't it so, yes exactly
1: everything's big and heavy with lots of gears and cogs and wires that's
0: it um, okay, so chapter three is uh, populating the expanse, and this section was what really won me over to this book completely. Um, I, I was so disappointed I never really got a chance to implement this into our own campaign because it was, would have been, especially for the scope of our campaign, where you had um, you know we had sixty old players in several different groups, yeah, so each managing their resources. Uh, actually, let's take it aside here because this is something we've I think we've discussed in the past. Definitely. Outside the show, but probably on the show as well, is this idea that some people do, that I started to do in the game, where we say, okay, your group starts with 30 profit factor, for example. What is that 30 profit factor? What does your group actually have that represents that value as such? It's not all just tied up in money in the bank as such. You know, you probably have some worlds, you probably have. Some items as such that represent profit yeah, factor. Yep. Yeah,
1: yeah. You may have sold the rights to use a trade route to a trade concern, and they have to pay you a percentage of their profits, which is income and all that. That's sort it. Of stuff. So
0: when you lose profit factor, you know from things like the uh, you know the roles you make in the main book, that should maybe be represented as okay, you've lost some influence on this world, or this deal has gone bad or the person who... They've found, pays, a,
1: they've found another trade route to get to exactly the same location, but in a slightly different way so they yeah, don't have to pay you any. They were
0: lost in the warp, you know. Yeah. A, in, well, in which case, you've now got the... Because, I mean, I guess the thing with the main book section where it has about ways you might lose for a factor is there's got to be ways to recover games. from that. It, yes. To actually, you know... Because the whole idea is if you don't respond to it, you lose the profit factor. But if you respond to it, you stand the chance to keep it as such. Yeah. Which means you could do things like, say, well... The ship was lost to the warp, but now we need to try and find someone else who's willing to run that route for us and keep the money flowing in. But okay, so that, that brings me on to this this chapter, because primarily this is about maintaining colonies, both creating a colony, you know, everything down to the colony charter, like what it's actually there to do, what its what its rules are as such, because as the road trader that forms a colony, you know, you may, you'd probably at least be its... Governor slash administrator, as such, and it best be a sort of liege lord who comes by to you know tell the governor slash administrator what to do. Yes. So uh, you know it's a big deal how you actually establish that colony as well, uh, and then it's got this whole system where you work out the colony's values in terms of um, you know its population, its resources, its uh, you know, what it's actually the tools it's got at its disposal, and then you have and this is the bit I love is this sort of paper chase component where you can add. Uh, whole improvements to the colony, you know. So um, spend time actually giving it new facilities. Uh yeah, you don't it's just, okay, we've got this world. There's 2 power factor. Let's move on to the next world. You can actually have, for those people who are sort of facts and figures-minded like myself, I like this whole idea of having this book of all the worlds that we manage as such, you know. And with
1: a bit of... A ledger.
0: Yeah, that's right, yeah. With a bit of tooling by the GM, this doesn't just need to be colonies. This could be already established worlds that you back into the Imperium as such, you know, or that for whatever reason end up under your care, you could use the same resources to manage. I mean, I guess that to an extent the uh, this system is built around a more sparsely populated world like a standard colony. You know, it wouldn't really cover as well things like a hive world, but I don't think it would be too hard to tool it around uh, a bit I to think do. it'd
1: be pretty easy to tool it around and get it into some other... Way of managing larger colonies, it's like they have even space stations and things as well. Yeah,
0: it's probably actually something I'd like to maybe cover off in a future episode when we talk about a row trader system. We'll actually go through this, you know, sort of colony management system because there's even, you know, a, a new sheet in the back of the book Well, there's one for planets and there's one for colonies managing those as well. So yeah. it becomes almost like, you know, you've got the character sheet for your character, you've got the sheet for your ship. You know, it's just another set of sheets you can have for the for world. For you colonies know, you take, yeah. and
1: places you can go to to do things and deal with.
0: Yeah. That's it. And yet, as a gem then, you know, it's great because you can not only have to sit there creating new thing, new environments for your groups to go to, new things to discover, but you can actually do adventures or scenarios that harken back to older encounters. You know, they they hear about something bad happening on one of their worlds and they need to respond to it to prevent the world from falling into into problems basically so you know you get to go through it they get to go back and revisit you know their old stomping grounds as such and do what they can to you know i guess improve improve things there or protect their own investments as such yeah um there's also at the back of the section a a few i guess sample personality types for the sort of different people you might interact with when it comes to the running of a colony as well yeah so you know i Key stat blocks and such, and just some examples uh, there. An
1: idea of how to run a governor, how to run a, a chief police type person, or that's right, or, yeah. You know, and judges and naval personnel who wander around and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly.
0: What, what, what the expectations of the Imperium and its people are, basically, I guess. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, now, chapter four is uh, factions of the Expanse. Now, this is really just a few. Extra bits of material, uh, a, bit, a few bit of fluff that covers a few different groups within the expanse. It would have probably, for my mind, maybe fit a bit better into a book like um, oh, what's the main book about the Quarantine Expanse? Uh, I've forgotten now. But, you know, it, 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 it's not, I guess, tied to the material by and large. It was presented earlier in the book. Yeah, um, it's more about um, just his, his you know, here's four example groups. I mean, it's funny because if you look on the front page of the book. Uh, What does it say here? It actually says uh, exploration and conquest in the Kronos Expanse. And to be honest, the first three chapters of the book, you could put anywhere in the Imperium or outside the Imperium.
1: Absolutely. uh, No tie into the Kronos Expanse in the rest of the book up to that point, really. That's it. I mean, mean, it makes a few mentions to this is what it's like on this particular world, in this particular system. But really, the the actual rules-heavy side of stuff, and even a lot of the fluff, could be anywhere. Could be... Anyway, that's it.
0: Yeah, so it's, it. it's only really that last chapter that gives this book's ties gives this book's tie to the chronicles expansion. The yeah, definitely, yeah. and I think that uh, but the material there is good. It's interesting that yeah, you know, there's an alt group there. There's various different groups you might encounter. Um, I said it maybe feels a little bit out of place in this book. Like you know, here's some stuff we would have would have put in earlier book around our space. So we've got a bit more space in Stars of Equity. So let's jam it at the end. But I mean, the, I said the material's good. It just is incongruous with the rest of the book. But well, I guess it does give it that connection to the Cryer's Expanse. I mean, and that's that being said, you can use all the other chapters in the Cryer's Expanse, you're just not tied to that. Yeah. You know? So, look, I would say that um, overall for Road Trader, this is one of my favourite books. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's an excellent uh, book. And, and that's, unfortunately, never having actually had a chance to run a game with it. You know, um, we haven't done Road Trader since we stopped the Unbound back in 2013, middle 2013 when we stopped. Yeah. Um, and so we haven't really done Road Trader since, but yeah, this book is such a great resource. So I, I can say, you know, if I'm if I'm someone said to me, oh, James, come on and run a Road Trader game, you know, I'd okay, i I'd Road Trader, Into the Storm, definitely, Battlefleet, Cronus, Stars of Iniquity. You know, they, they'd be the books, they'd be my must haves, you know, and then probably. Yeah. And else. then
1: a couple of the other books, depending like on hostile what. Hostile Acquisitions. Hostile and Acquisitions, and Navis, Navis, not Navis Primer, Primers. if yeah. you've got Navigators. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, but I mean, this. Yeah, as I said, as I said at the start, you will never be without an adventure idea with this book. Yeah. It may there's a lot of charts, so it may take a bit of time. It's not something you do when the group says oh. we're just going to jump to the walk, you know, sheets to the wind and see what we find. You know, you want to sort of no. sit down beforehand and
1: I do think, all the roles. I think actually that's the strength of this book that you can go well. Okay, I'm running a game next week. They're finished in the sector they're in. They're, they're heading, sorry, not sector system they're in. They're heading to a new system. I have no idea what to put in their way, what to show them or give them. And then just, you know, a couple of nights before, just roll up some charts, see see what fate gives you, and then you can tinker with it a little bit as well to make it fit a little bit better if you desire.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where groups don't like feeling railroaded when they're playing a game. They don't feel like feeling... They're just, they're just going from a pre planned event to pre planned event that GM's put in front of them. Yeah. And a great way you can sort of create the illusion of a non-linear plot, is by giving people different options as such. So, yeah,
1: If they pull up into a system and there's five or six things they can look at straight off the bat, it, I mean you can pretty much guess as the GM which one they're going to go to first, yeah. because you'll go, well, you know there's a planet made of solid diamond astro, mm. you know, f- orbiting the world, with, you know, broadcasting a Xenos signal, they're probably going to go to that first over the asteroid field or something else. But you know, they have the option that they may go. No, nah, we're not going to do that. We're gonna
0: yeah. go and that. certainly that was what I ran into early in the days of the Unbound. Was I'd have one thing, and they might say, "Well, let's check out blah," and I'd be like, "Ah, nothing, nothing's there. Oh, we look really... No, nothing's there. It's a red herring. Move on to the plot, please." You know. <laughs> so th- 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 this book, I think, is really great for giving that example. And as I said, it gives you what looks like a, a, a amateur astronomer's view of, of the universe. I remember the first time in a game, um, some players said to me they wanted to use. The, the system's Oort Cloud for a tactical situation. They, they, they had a tactic in mind they wanted to use that involves doing something in the Oort Cloud. I'm like, the what now? Mm. Yeah. So uh, I I guess as a GM, if you can sort of throw these little elements in that are both, you know, sound, sciencey but also have that 40K feel, it's only going to enhance the gameplay for your players. Yep. So, Mike, how many uh, lost stars will you uh, give Stars of Iniquity?
1: Um... It's actually going to receive one of my highest ratings ever, which is nine and a half.
0: Yeah, I was going to say exactly the same as well. It's, it is is—it's so close to perfect. It's, it is. That, yeah. The
1: only thing dropping it down is it could have come out a little bit sooner. And the last chapter, I would have preferred an adventure. Yeah. I'm not saying the last chapter with the the, the plot hooks it gives you with the enemy fleets isn't good. It's just I would have preferred something else.
0: Yeah, maybe a pre-adventure. Designed around a colony, basically. That yeah. Give give like give an example for a GM of of
1: how to run a colony after it's been set up, or how to set up a colony.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's it. But um, yeah, I, I think yeah, re- really fantastic book, and and kudos to the guys who ah. who worked on this. I think it was um Max Brook who was the producer. Yeah. Some of the guys we've spoken to in the past, like Tim um yeah, Tim Cox, as well, who we met at uh, Gen Con they were working on the book too. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of lots of big names here, so yeah. Definitely, this is a A very well done book and happy to give this one a high score. Definitely. All right, so uh, let's move on, shall we? Yes. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. So for today's study discussion, uh, as I mentioned before, this is a topic that one of our listeners asked us to discuss on the show, and that is about how to create effective and memorable adversaries for for your group. Uh, now, I guess with Road Trader, you've got an additional sort of option of adulty, which is the Nemesis uh, Life Pass or Origin Pass system from hostile acquisitions. Yeah. You know, not only do you have a sort of tool which allows you to develop the sort of needs and motivations of the adversary, but, you know, sort of give it, help give it a stat block as well, um, which is, you know, I guess a good option for Road Traders because it, there's not much that can really confront a Road Trader when it comes to power. Uh, so it's going to be uh, any threat to a road trader needs to be something. It needs to probably you know if it's a threat to their ship, it needs to have a ship of its own or something equally powerful. You know, if it's a a, a threat on the ground, it needs to be something that you know can withstand the fact that road trader has a ship potentially in orbit as such. You know, and and for these adversaries, we won't just mean combatants. You know, an adversary can be whatever something else that just constantly interferes with the crew. So, for example, if you had a crew who are always just sketch, you know, sketching the edge of of what's legal. You know, there could be an inquisitor or, or an arbitas, you know, sort of commander who's always watching them as such. You know, uh,
1: or even Imperial Navy,
0: Imperial Navy, exactly right. Yeah, mm. that, they also don't like pirates, pirates <laughs> <laughs> think as well. Yeah, so
1: smugglers. Yeah. yeah,
0: so the adversary may not even be someone which is. You know, evil or bad in, in the context of the game, it's something that which, which gets is opposed, in the way a
1: lot. Yeah, yep. opposed
0: to the characters and such, yeah. Uh, I mean, to give you an example here, when we were having, uh, we were running Unbound, there was one group who were, uh, I, I guess, they were typified as uh, always thinking quite highly of themselves and, and not particularly liking Xenos. So when we created Nemesis for them, we went back and used the Strixes. Who from the outside appear to be quite an unusual trader culture, you know. So when that group first encountered them, you know what we decided was going to be the nemesis. It was on positive terms. You know, the, the Strixus wanted to neg- wanted to trade, but we sort of built the Strixus up there as tr- trading rather oddly, you know. And, and they basically went down the whole path of let's give the Strixus. Um, you know, diseased blankets as such, or the equivalent of such. You know, we'll, we'll trade them something, something junk, junk for. I mean, they have that they really like. You know, we really want. And haha, you know, aren't we good We managed to exploit this alien culture. So we decided that. You know, they quickly discovered that the Strixus didn't like being fooled and had much greater numbers than them, and were going to come after them, to sort of you know settle down, settle this whole dispute, you know, not necessarily violently, but it could go that way if the group responded violently, which was, in some ways, their their way as such. So, uh, yeah, that was sort of how we built up this potential nemesis for the group from something that would start off as a positive interaction into something that we felt would become a negative one down the track and, you know, we were proven right in that process. Uh, All right, so when you are thinking about an adversary, you need to decide whether the adversary is an individual you know, literally, you know, they're represented by this key figure, or maybe a group of individuals. So, you know, you can make it say a rival road trader, or you can make it that road trader and his core retinue. crew. The same, yeah. you know, just like the road trader that you're playing with has a retinue as well. Uh, or is the adversary a large group? You know, your adversary could literally be the Inquisition, the Navy. Yeah, yeah. the Navy, etc. are yes. right. Uh, you're gonna work out what's gonna be work best for your group. I guess the issue with a single person is that it's much easier to... Just kill them. Well, yeah, that's it. I mean, well, from a GM point of view, it's much easier to, to create a personality which the players can latch onto because they are to them with one person. But likewise, the moment that person's dead, the threat potentially is gone or at least greatly reduced. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to balance up as to how big the threat actually is. Even if it's got a single figurehead, it may be, you know, there's an whole organization behind that figurehead as well. Uh, you want to start thinking about how you want to introduce the adversary into the game. Because I think the introduction is one of the most important things because when we talk about a memorable adversary, people will remember the key events about the adversary, including how they first turned up. Yeah. So like I said before, how we wanted the fixus to come in through a, a, a positive interaction rather than a negative one and build it from there. So think about the nature of your adversary and, and why you want them to be an adversary for the group and then how you will set that up in the context of the storyline. So, I mean, Mike, can you think... Off the top of your head, I'm sorry to put you on the spot here, but it could be 40k or anything else aside. When you've created for a group, what will become basically a... a reoccurring. A, adversary. a reoccurring adversary, such like how you've decided to create it and bring it in?
1: Um, it's... It, oh, a couple of times. I mean, the, the first thing I usually do is create an adversary which is just going to possibly be just one shot. Because... When you first create an adversary, you have to be expecting that something could go horribly wrong in the very first encounter. And the players either just don't connect with the character, so they don't care what happens. Or they just kill them off of hand, or they completely ignore the person. There's always the chance that you'll create an excellent adversary and you'll think everything out and you'll create your whole storyline and then the players completely just ignore it. Yeah, They just decide, that's not what we're interested in i don't care about this person whatever so just create them as just short term at the beginning um with the possibility of extending them on so that's probably the best way of doing it that i've always found yeah, i
0: mean i mean conversely if they did ignore the character initially you could still build an adversary and then when the players think back they go oh we wrote that guy off at first thinking it was not that important but he turned out to be something really important as well yeah. you could still do that way as well
1: yeah, yeah certainly you can um it is a lot harder if the players actually actively find the character just plain annoying yeah. and just don't want to deal with them. In which case, then you have to do a lot of scrabbling if you have put a lot of time and effort into developing this adversary. So I always find it good to sort of do a test run with an adversary first. Um, have them as the leader of a gang or something like that or someone that they may not particularly know. They may just meet them at passing at a party or something or an event or an tr- auction or a trade action of some kind yeah, and they interact with them briefly and see if anything clicks if they have any interest at all with this NPC. And if they do then great, carry on with your plans. If they don't figure out who they have latched onto and then build on that character.
0: Yeah, I want to give an example of a, a sort of classic adversary from sort of modern, modern context and such I think it was, was developed and brought in really really well and that was Blofeld from the James Bond movies yes you know was was that for a long while the character was only hinted at as such you know he was he was the head of this great organization and you know he was always sort of pictured from behind without ever showing off who he was as such you know this concept of this individual and when he did finally appear in the films i think when he was finally killed revealed. it was quite it was quite sort of
1: well there's actually a great story about the reason why he was killed and it shows more about the dickishness between writers than anything else yeah um Actually, the original writer of um, Thunderbolt, which was supposed to be Dr. No, had the rights to make that movie revoked, and he ended up cashing them in later to make that film with that character. And he owned the intellectual property on Blofeld, not the producer and director of the other movies. And as such... When they killed Blofeld off, it was just a giant middle finger to the original director. (laughs) 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 There is actually an entire story behind that and the reason why it's built that way. But you're right, it is a great way of building up. You sort of hint at the fact that there's someone greater behind powers moving things around and everything um, without directly showing your hand. Or you might show your hand and have this person met without the characters realising that they're the person controlling these other trade factions and yeah. other groups who were after the same time. I mean, this games. is something
0: I've done often in games as well and, and I think we have really discussed it before but I've certainly run scenes in a game that are what you might call off-camera scenes. So the player characters aren't in the scene. I will simply describe a scene taking place without the player characters, you know, so they might have just gotten away at, from some major event, whatever, and then I'll play it. I'll say, okay, and, and as your ship flies from the distance, you know, below on the planet's surface, a lone figure watches and you know, sort of says, ah, yes, you've done exactly what I predicted. You know, we'll, we'll meet again soon, Rogue Trader Captain. Yes, we will. You know, it's, That's something to hint to the player characters that there is some of the machination going on in the background that they are now a part of as well. And then you can, they build it up into an adversary down the track. Yeah. Uh, I guess next thing I want to talk about, you sort of mentioned before as well, which is the risk of your adversary just getting killed. Yeah, if you if you bring them in, well, and...
1: it depends obviously. It depends if we're talking about adversaries which are going to be long-term or short-term because it's just as important if, you know, even if it's just a gang member that they're going to beat up on and kill by the end of this single adventure that they're still a memorable adversary. Yeah. So, yeah, obviously this bit only applies to adversaries which are going to continue on.
0: Yeah, that's it. So, but I mean, you want to have it so that The player characters aren't just constantly positioned to be able to kill the character without frustrating the player characters that this person's always outside of their reach.
1: Yeah. You know. But it depends because sometimes they're always going to be outside of the reach. If it's an Imperial Navy captain, they are never going to be able to just kill him.
0: That's it. Yeah. But I mean, the campaign against the adversary may be a series of maneuvers designed to deplete his. Power over time, you know, to, it, to
1: get him a demotion or get him removed from duty. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. It depends what the players are after. So, obviously, you don't want to put them in a position where they can just kill you. You, you know, he wants to do a monologue when they burst into the room and he starts talking, and one of the players whips out a bolt gun and blows his head off, which, as we all know in games, happens all the time. <laughs> You know, you, you go to start reading your box text in your pre-made adventure, and, and someone just says, "I don't care about listening to your, you know, your crazy rantings," and they just shoot him, yeah. or shoot at him, or something. So, if you're going to do that, you have to put it in a way where they can't just react that way. Um, yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, I hate box text interruptors, I gotta say, you know. That's what I always, uh, I might say, okay, so you come into a room, and it's, you know, it's a dark room, it's about 15 feet wide. You can see a door on the far wall, and suddenly a character's like, I walk over to the door, you know, and I say, with a gun turret next to it, we start shooting at you, you know, <laughs> because you didn't wait for me to finish my description of the room. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's, it's by the by when it comes to the series. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess one thing that I've, Always struggle to do with adversaries is, you know, create ways for them to escape from whatever it might be, so they can then live again to be continue to be an adversary. Such, oh isn't? yeah,
1: definitely. But by the same token, you don't want to drag it out too long. Eventually, the players will get bored of an adversary. Yeah, and they'll want to kill them because you you have to time it just right. And with adversaries and this sort of thing, it's actually really difficult because. If you leave it too long, the players are bored with them, and by the time they kill them, they're just like, "Oh, thank God that's over." Yeah. Whereas if you do it too early, they're like, "Oh, yeah, great, we killed him," but there's no real finalization of the development. You have to get it at just that right moment where the players are actually really grateful that they've finally been able to rid themselves of this person before they got too annoying.
0: Yeah. I mean, conversely, there's also the option of making sure that you don't incorporate the adversary into every single game, and I think that's a common mistake that people make when they a gym in a game where they particularly like an adversary they've created, they, they've always got to work that character into every plot yeah. that the PCs are up against. And you want to have it so that sometimes it's just something else that the PCs are involved in. You know, it doesn't matter that you know, this particular adventure has nothing to do with their adversary or, you know, you know space it out. That the adversary is not always in their face and that, that makes them sort of longer-lasting as well. Yeah,
1: definitely, definitely.
0: Yeah. I guess the way I look at it as a gym is, to try and create an adversary as though you're creating a player character. So what are their actual needs, wants, and, and motivations as such? You know? I know that uh, with the song game i will be running, yeah, that, that some early adversaries I created for the game, I made the mistake of just saying that, okay, their motivation is to oppose the player characters. You know, it's that they are the opposition that pretty much do the opposite of what the player characters want to do because they need to be they need to be opposed. Yeah, you know, without without actually thinking about what is their end goal, why are they opposing them? What are they what do they gain by being in opposition as such and and the player characters called me on my bullshit on well, the player, the player's call me my on my, my mistake and basically said, you know, look okay, you've done that, but that didn't make any sense. Why did they do that? It was just silly. So I then had to come up with reasons to say, Okay, well they did that because well, I had to sort of backtrack and, and think of it later on, which was silly. I should have sort of, sort of thought of it at the start. So I certainly do come up with, you know, ideas about what the personality is like, why they're doing what they're doing. They're not just there to be against the player character; They're there to actually do something. It's like I've always said that the easiest way to write a game when it comes to a game that involves some sort of adversary is to say, okay, I'll write a timeline of what the adversary will do with no... Player character interaction. So that, you know, that's
1: generally how I do. It.
0: That's it. They do this, 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 and then they conquer the world. But at some point on that line, the player character will get involved, and that will change the outcome. Yeah. But if you write down what their path is without the player character, then in many ways, the player characters put themselves into opposition uh, position anyway because they don't want the they don't want that NPC to rule the world or whatever it might be that they that they're planning to do. Yeah. Um. I guess the only thing to watch out for there is that, and this I've seen a lot of people do, is uh, create an adversary as though it's their own character and then get attached to it. Yeah. And and not want it to be defeated or or something. I've got to remember that it's a game about the player characters, not about the NPCs. The NPCs are set dressing for the player character stories. Yeah. Um, I guess that comes down to thinking about what the adversary does when they're not opposing the player characters. You know, what what are their other motivations? What else are they trying to do? Uh, Another thing I've seen get into, become a problem for GMs is, and this is a problem for me, I do this quite a lot, is I create polarizing adversaries. They're they're either so evil as to be completely irredeemable. cartoony. Yep, or they are, you know, a a rogue with a heart of gold. You know, they're they're just there. Waiting for the player characters to realise that they're they're doing everything they do because they love their their kid, and they're trying to save their kid, and that you know that they can somehow be redeemed and become go from adversary to good guy. And, and these are polar opposite opinions, you know. And really speaking, most people would actually fall
1: somewhere somewhere out. in the
0: middle, and such
1: uh, yeah, definitely. And I suppose it comes down to the fact that sometimes people are just dicks. Yeah, really. Sometimes your NPC, the reason they're opposing the player is because they're greedy, they're jealous you know, really petty, minor things, but they've got the personality type that just takes that sort of thing and just doesn't let go. Mm. And they can make really good adversaries because players can sort of understand why it's happening, and they can see that there's not really any way you can fix that situation. You've insulted them too much, you've caused the death of a friend, you've stolen something from them, you've done something which has made them unhappy enough with you to want to kill you, and they may not necessarily be a bad person, but you're not going to be able to fix that bridge.
0: Yeah, that's it. Uh,
1: and I guess one other thing
0: I want to mention is about talking about ways to create a legacy for your adversary, because at some point or other, your adversary will be defeated. Yeah. Um, but it's always a lot of fun, I think, to have some sort of later callback to the adversary, not bring them back to life again or have them so they secretly survive, but just, uh, okay, this comes back to a discussion that I was having on the FFG forums recently, where, um, so I'll, I'll give you the background. So a, a player on the FFG forums said they had this idea for a two-part campaign. First part only war. The, the A regiment is sent to a derelict ship that's been discovered, uh, which appears to have you know, citizens on board, all, all well and good, but then when they're checking it out, people start to disappear. And it turns out there's actually a genes to the cult on the ship and that they then have to fight the genus of the cult and escape, and eventually the second part of the campaign is a dark heresy campaign where an Inquisitor and Acolytes come in to, to sort out the ship. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, my, one of my key issues there would be, okay, if, if this ship is completely run by a genus, a genus of the cult, I can't think of reasons why the Imperium wouldn't just Nova Cannon it into dust. You know, But if you had this situation, so I said, okay, how about this idea? The only war regiment gets there and they uh, discover that there's a, a, a starting gene to the cult. You know, there's, there's a there's a, a Puri, there are a few... Um, hybrids. Um, Malificari, whatever they're called, or Malissari, Mal- whatever, and then some hybrids, some base hybrids. Yeah,
1: some hybrids and plenty of Brood Brothers.
0: That's it, yeah. And, and they, you know, the final encounter is with the the, the the Pure Strain and, you know, the lead hybrid. And they manage to, to kill it off, and so they celebrate. We've we've beaten this thing, you know. We've we've conquered the genes of the cop, but there may still be some people in the the crew who are infected. So we'll now send the Inquisitor in uh, in order to check out the crew. And you say, okay, now that they beat that adversary, the adversary was that that sort of that lead hybrid, and then eventually also the the you know the genes of the patriarch, which is probably something that's untenable as a as a personality to conf- conflict with and such, it's just a, a sat lock to them basically. Yeah. But, you know, then okay, so you have now in the time it takes to get an inquisitory attack, like said, it could be a few years, you know. Then it turns out that one thing that the the hybrid had done before being killed was was uh, procreate and has now produced a um, uh, what do you call it the staple sorry? A, a magus, yeah, which yeah. is indistinguishable from a human was completely unspotted by the guard and that magus is now um, you know, has developed and has once again reproduced and produced the next, pure, pure the, new, the next pure strain, and so the whole cycle has started again. Uh, you know, now the adversary has changed, but the story still calls back to the adversary that was that was conquered and defeated before as well. Yeah, uh, and I think that's something you want to do with adversaries: is um, yeah, sure have the point where the adversary is now defeated; they're no longer a threat. But don't be afraid to look for ways to, you know. Somehow go back to that in in later encounters and such. I mean, you saw it in my Dark Heresy game several times. I did callbacks to earlier games. Yeah, you know, it's, even down to the point of the player characters reliving one of their experiences. You know, just because I wanted them, I wanted to sort of create this impression of uh, a consistent storyline across multiple separators they're separated plots.
1: Yeah. I, I want to point out though that one thing you've got to make sure you don't do mm. is the son of the enemy, the brother of the enemy. This continuing line of, oh, you've killed this person, but now their their sons turned up, now their brothers turned up, and now their tutor's turned up, now their mentor, now their third cousin, now their dog, <laughs> you know, it just gets ridiculous after a while. After it's
0: good, a, class, a classic a classic movie making example is the Jaws films. Yeah. So Jaws one, classic film, it's like the epitome of movie making it's, its a it's a story in three parts it's got the turn right in the middle where it goes from shark hunts people to people hunt shark you know, it 's it's a classic example of how to, how to make a movie the second film you know good film as well uh, you know, I guess believable storyline within the context of the the sitting as such the third film just silly the, and the fourth film the concept of this shark that then pursues you know a, a family of the person who killed its relatives across the country. It's just completely ridiculous, you know. So uh, I think you can probably do it once. You know, yeah. You, you can you can call back to your adversary once, uh, and I think that if you, you know, and the longer you leave it before you call back to it, the more gravitas it will have in your storyline as well.
1: There is an exception to that though. Yep. You can do it if you set up that that person already exists. If you have long lost brothers working their way out of the woodwork every so often, it's not going to work. But if you've already set it up that the brother exists you know He, you, you're always finding letters that he's written to his brother and all this sort of stuff then you already the players already know that that's something they're going to have to deal with at some point and it's an expected outcome and then it doesn't it doesn't seem silly
0: yeah alright well I think that's probably all I've got to say about about uh, adversaries you got anything else you want to throw in
1: uh, make sure they've got quirks that make them interesting enough for the players to actually care about yeah.
0: that's probably the main thing
1: yeah
0: all right, all right. Well, let's uh, move on to closing up the show. Yep.
1: All astropaths to the
0: choir chamber message incoming. All right, so welcome to our final part of the show. This is normally the part where we talk about any new reviews or comments that we've received, but because we're recording out of order, uh, we can't really go through any sort of comments that may have come through up until the point the show was released because it's like a good two weeks before that. Uh, so, what I will just say is thank you to those people who do review the show. If you do want to help out, please feel free to leave us a review. On iTunes, Uh, And also, obviously, if you've got comments about the show or questions or suggestions, please feel free to to send them through. Uh, If you do want to contact us, there's several ways of doing it. First off, there's our website, which is www.grimdartpodcast.com. There's our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Our Google Plus page, which is plus.google.com slash plus sign grimdartpodcast. Uh, We've got a Twitter account, which is at grimdartpodcast. And you can email us at show at grimdartpodcast.com. Uh, there's also the forums, which is Dark rain which is R-E-I-G-N dot org slash community. We've also got our voicemail app on the website, so you can go on our website and click on send voicemail and, and leave us a message there. So feel free to leave questions or maybe, you know, comments on our first year having been passed now. Uh, and also don't forget our affiliate link for through RPG, which links from both our Facebook and Google Plus pages along with our main site, you can buy all the FFG books or any other role-playing books you want to buy in PDF and help support our show at the same time as well. Yeah. So coming up in episode 28, we're back around to talking about Death Watch. Uh, so I want to talk about chapter building in Death Watch, the system for that, and also maybe go through some examples. Yep. Uh, we're doing the Tech Marine as our, our specialty discussion, which is actually the last specialty in, uh, in Death Watch, so we need to start thinking about what we do once we've gone through all the main specialties in the books or careers for each each game system but uh, Death Watch I always think would be the first one we'd hit yeah. we'll talk about later anyway um, we're going to do a review of the of Achilles Assault and we haven't set a discussion topic yet only because we're getting so many good suggestions from our listeners that will probably you know that, that show being recorded is actually a good what four to six weeks off where we actually are now because we're recording early so we've still got plenty of time to look through our options and, and come up with a good discussion then. So we'll let you know closer to the date. Yep. But uh, yeah, we look forward to doing that show. And thank you for listening tonight, Mike. Thank you again.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And we will catch you next time. This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer Forty Thousand, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and/or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is a trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing Inc. All other materials are trademarked and or copyright by the respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grimdark Podcast. All rights are reserved by the respective owners. Our theme music comes from Mibio's musicality, music.mibio.com.